was really fucking hoping to be different this year, uh, she optimistic, not me, no ghetto Esther aquí, woe is me, lapel through feet, she still want me, say, la vie, I can't even leave my place without hiding my face, just a glamorized desk job, rotting away, I ain't even got friends, feel like everyone's fake, really praying for the day the reaper take me away. What's up, everybody? How the hell are you doing today? It's Johnny back in here with another live stream for you guys. Good to see everyone. Joshua Harper, welcome to the show. Todd Packer, good to see you, man. Polska Bob's in here as well, guys. Thanks for coming along. I appreciate it very, very much, guys. Studio setup, bright lights happening, green screen action in full effect here on Stream Yard today, not OBS this time. So it is what it is. I quit paying for StreamYard, which is, there's the little duck thing up there. I might start paying for it again sometime, but um, right now I'm just kind of weighing out all the different options. And I do like StreamYard's green screen effect better with the lighting and the proper green screen and everything, but I'm not totally great with uh, OBS's if settings are weird, it makes the face look weird. OBS is good for certain things. I'd rather be in Premiere Pro doing editing on my regular videos and then uploading them that way instead of OBS. So I may go back to StreamYard, which is what we're doing today. Anyways, what's going on, guys? Wills is here. Also, Wills, excuse me, is here. Polska Bob, you and a couple other members of my members area here on YouTube might notice that next to your name now, your icon has changed to the little gone with John skull, everyone else watching. If you see anyone in any of my comment sections or anything that has a little gone with John skull next to their name, just know that they are a member of my members area. And I actually, excuse me, just got finished filming a video for the members area of my whole studio lighting and set out and walk around my apartment and talk with the members. I like the members area guys because it lets me be myself and uh, here on regular YouTube, I tend to do more of these videos and be more serious, at least, well, not in the live streams for God's sakes, but you understand like this is more of a production, whereas the members area, I can be myself, just walk around in my apartment or the pool or the lake or whatever. So if you want to join the members area, it's $3 a month. Um, it's not a lot of money. It buys me a cup of coffee or something like that. But um, I do get to share more intimate stuff there, and I like that. Let's jump into today's topic, boys. Today we're talking about Hollywood has is ruining movies, guys. It's absolutely destroying the fabric of uh, movies and, well, everything. 
TV shows have gone to shit. Marvel has gone to, you know, DC is all gone just completely downhill. And um, we've seen this time and time and again. I actually brought it up earlier, jumping ahead a little bit, that uh, the mouse has ruined uh, Star Wars and a lot of other franchises, guys. Um, the biggest problem is right now they're pushing this message, this woke message and this, well, you get it, the rainbow agenda is being pushed so heavily. And quite frankly, let me just state for the record, I don't care. I don't mess with rainbow people because I don't, I'm, I just don't. It's not that I dislike any. I don't have any problems with it. I, it doesn't bother me because it doesn't affect my life. But I don't want it shoved down my throat, quote unquote. You know what I'm saying. Um, it's unfortunate. But this is everywhere and they've gotten so um, inclusive that they tend to ruin the plot and everything that the shows and or movies that we all have come to love over the years. And well, it's sad, quite frankly, it's, it's really sad. But anyways, I've got some videos pulled up by one of my favorites, Critical Drinker, talking about Hollywood and how it's ruined some of this stuff. We're gonna be reacting to it today and watching them together. Should be a good time, guys. Hit the, uh, where is it? There it is. Hit the Cash App if you're interested in donating to the show, or you can drop a Super Chat if you want your voice to be heard. Super Chats will, of course, be put onto the screen to live here in eternity forever on the Gone Whoops Gone channel, and everyone who watches will get to see. 66, welcome to the show, buddy. Good to see you. Yes, Todd. Fan baiting. We will actually cover fan baiting as well. It's something that a lot of um, studios are doing right now to do things that will piss off their fans so their fans will get on social media and post about it on Facebook and on Shitter and on all the other platforms. And by doing that, it gives these movie companies free advertising. The more people talk about this stuff and say, oh, well, this and that, and it's free advertising, all because the fans that are now infuriated with the uh, Hollywood production companies, you know, it just it's how they do it, guys. It's free advertising. It's free marketing. It's why so many people do so many ridiculous things on social media because it gets picked up. Chainslayer, good to see you, guy. Good to see you, sir. Let's see here. Critical of your hearing this, I challenge to a game of drink. You know what, Todd? I I mean, excuse me, Polska. I don't know which of the two of you would be able to stay in longer. He is a Scottish gentleman, so I would imagine uh, one would think that he would have you beat there, but I could be completely wrong. Guys, let's go ahead and dive into his uh, video here today. We'll get it pulled up. One of the things you probably heard me prattle on about in reviews and live streams is the concept. Somebody drop it in the comments. Can you hear the sound and everything? any issues, anything like that. My voice, obviously a little echo in my empty, beautiful apartment, which I love that way, but drop it in the comments. Let me know. Can you hear Critical Drinker's voice? Okay, everything. All right, guys. Concept of setup and payoff and why it's so important in movie making. But what the hell does it actually mean? And why is it so important? Well, the truth is, I don't really know because I'm making this shit up as I go along. Ugh, fuck. 
Tatiana, edit that part out and get me a fucking sandwich! Setup and payoff is actually a pretty simple idea. Basically, it means if you're going to have significant things happen later in your story, then you kind of need to build them up first. If it's some big emotional payoff, for example, like your main character overcoming the antagonist to win the day, then you need to help your audience understand why that antagonist needs to be defeated. Yep. If it's some unusual or unexpected event that changes the course of the story, you first need to help your audience understand how that thing could happen. It's like planting little seeds in their minds that slowly grows over the course of the story. In other words, the setup. So that when the time comes for the important event to happen, i.e. the payoff, it feels believable, and as a result, it's both intellectually and emotionally satisfying for the audience. Basically, And this is something they just don't do as much anymore because it's better to just give you the woke agenda, tell you what to think about the movie, tell you how to you should feel and react, rather than letting you make up your own mind. You know, in movies, they used to show you things um, of the actors that would allow you to make up your own mind that, hey, this is a smart, intelligent individual. Where if you notice in movies and TV shows today, they don't do that anymore. They just have another character enter the room who then tells the person, oh, you're so smart and you're such a wonderful individual. And then no critical thinking is left up to the viewer at all, which in today's society is probably not a bad thing, but it does ruin the movie for people that are intelligent and capable of critical thinking. Clue what I'm saying with all this pretentious shite is that you can't just throw in any random crap at any moment and expect people to stay invested in your story. You need to set it up first. The key is to do it in such a way that the audience doesn't know it's being done. You need to subtly manipulate them into knowing the things you want them to know without giving the game away completely. Make your setup too obvious and clunky and you'll tip your audience off about future events, killing the tension and drama when you need it most. On the other hand, if you don't do any setup at all, you'll end up with payoffs that feel cheap, contrived and manufactured, because that's exactly what they are. But don't worry, we'll talk more about that later, believe me. The point here is that a good, well-constructed setup should be subtly woven into the script so that it feels like a natural part of the story and people don't see it for what it actually is. And I think the best way to explain it is to show you a couple of examples of how it's done right and wrong. The first one is going to come from the 1990 movie Tremors. Now bear with me here because if you think this is just a dumb monster flick, you might have a different opinion by the time I'm done explaining it. Anyway, Tremors centers around a... And Tremors was a really good movie, guys. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but this actually was good. I mean, it is from a while back and everything like that, but it, it just was good back then. And it's still pretty watchable today. It's one of those movies that holds up. Not the other one is the second or third or however many they made, but the first one was decent. A small isolated town in America that suddenly finds itself under siege by giant underground worms that can burrow through the desert sand and grab you from below without warning. It's a bit like Jaws, except in this case there's no way to get out of the water. Obviously, because they live underground, these things have no eyes, so they hunt instead by sensing vibrations through the... True blood, good to see you, sir. Welcome to the stream. Today we're picking apart Hollywood and the mess that they're making. Surface. Stand still and they'll struggle to find you. Jump around and make noises and, well... <laughs> By the midpoint of the movie, most of the characters have holed up in the town's general store to regroup and plan their next move. 
They know they have to keep quiet to avoid detection, so they're careful to keep their voices down and move around as little as possible. Smart move. They've recognized the threat and taken appropriate measures to combat it. But then this happens. Turn it off! Hey, what's going on, True Blood? Good to see you again, buddy. I don't know if I said hi or not, but here we go. Oh no, an unforeseen factor they didn't account for, which totally changes their situation and puts them on the defensive again. It's a neat little way of pulling the rug out from under our character's feet just when they're starting to get a handle on things, raising the tension and stakes once more. And Guys, hit that like button for me, I would appreciate it. And it feels like a believable event, given where the film takes place. After all, this is a dusty old convenience store in the middle of nowhere. It's totally plausible that their equipment would be aging, neglected, and prone to mechanical faults like this. I would like to point out, this is something that young people today uh, just won't understand as much and won't be able to, because back then there wasn't cell phones. Like You couldn't just get on the phone and call the army or the police in the next city over and say, hey, giant worms are over here attacking our shit. This was a time when like you were, that was it. Like there was the landline and if the landline didn't work, well, the, you weren't communicating. There was no internet to just hop on and, hey, we got big ass worms over here. So this was, and what a great time in movie making and imagination, something that is completely lost on today's youth this. But what's great here is that the script actually sets this event up in the first 10 minutes of the film, when Val and Earl, the two main characters, visit the store to pick up some supplies. Also, I'd like to point out, look how toxic masculine ugh, ugh, these dudes are. These are some regular-ass dudes, and nowadays movies couldn't have this. They'd have to have the, you know, the softer you get it. Now, keep in mind what I said earlier about making your setup feel like a subtle, natural part of the story, and let's see what this scene does. First and foremost, it establishes that the cooler is defective and prone to making loud noises, something which is obviously going to pay off later in the movie. But it's how this is woven into the rest of the scene that's so interesting. In the subsequent conversation, Walter, the owner of the place, points out the problem to the two handymen, hinting that he wants them to fix it for him. Hey guys, listen, hurry going out. What do you think? Since they basically make a living doing odd jobs around town, this is a good chance for them to make some extra money. Notice how Val seems vaguely interested, only for Earl to stop him and remind him about the schedule that he's worked out, thus preventing them from fixing the machine. Ironically, this one decision actually results in Walter getting killed later in the film. But anyway, this behaviour fits perfectly with the character of the two men. Val's kind of a free spirit who does what seems best at the time and doesn't think too far ahead. <laughs> Brandon Trueblood says he's got a big worm, guys. Oh shit, I believe him. I believe you, Brando. Nobody ever called the army on you, though? He's young and impetuous. Also, Rusty, what's up, sir? Good to see you. Mouth agape ape in the building. More inclined to rush in without considering the consequences. Earl, on the other hand, is older and supposedly wiser and sees himself as the brains of the operation, a big picture kind of guy who plans ahead and takes the longer view. I mean, his version of seeing the big picture is planning. I keep trying to place where I know this guy from. I know it's from a bunch of different movies, but uh, I figured it out. I don't know if you guys ever saw Remo Williams. Very old movie, but very good movie. Remo Williams, Adventure Returns or some shit like that. It was an action movie in the 80s. 
If you guys haven't seen it, it is worth a watch. It's a pretty decent movie from that period, but uh, that's where I know him from. If y'all know him from anywhere else, put it in the comments because uh, that's where I know him from. In like two days ahead, but that's what makes these two characters funny and endearing. They're both pretty clueless and totally unprepared for what they're up against. Anyway, Val correctly points out that Earl's attempts to plan ahead are actually causing them to waste time that could otherwise be used more efficiently, if only it was a bit more flexible. Oh yeah, see, we plan ahead. That way we don't do anything right now. Earl, explain it to me. Not only is this kind of a funny dig at his friend, but it also tells you a bit more about Val himself. He might not be a planner, but he's still savvy enough to spot opportunities when they arise. It establishes a neat balance between the two characters, where neither one is smarter or better. <laughs> Anthony Williams said Fred Ward, did Trimmers as well. Who's Is that Fred Ward? No. Not positive, but this is the movie trimmers. Than the other, they just have different points of view, each with their own strengths and weaknesses, and the movie gives both men a chance to shine at various times. Now, it probably seems like I'm spending a lot of time spunking over a scene that lasts just a few seconds, but honestly, I can't emphasize enough just how well put together this is. On a technical level, what you've actually got here is set up for something that will have a major impact on the movie an hour later, cleverly hidden behind a humorous and insightful exchange between our two main characters, so that you don't even realize it's a setup. The hallmark of good writing for me is the ability to achieve multiple things at the same time. And, and this was a great movie, man. Back in the 80s, this was the jam, dude. This was such a good, like I said, before internet, before cell phones, before they destroyed any semblance of what it meant to actually be a man or have some nuts. This was a great movie, guys. Fantastic. Also, guys, hit the cash app here so that I can uh, afford to get my StreamYard back and I'll pay for the other version so we can do all the sounds and shit that we normally do, if you want to. Make it seem so easy that you don't even realize it's happening. It's not until you start to break it down that you realize how much thought and care goes into stuff like this. The people who wrote this script really took the time to cover the bases here, anticipating questions the audience might ask, and probably put a lot of work in to deliver it all in the slickest, most efficient way possible. In short, they respected their viewers' intelligence and didn't want to waste their time with bloated, inefficient exposition scenes. Imagine. Or the message guys or the message mouth the gate babe thank you for your donations i appreciate you not in movies today which brings me neatly along to the opposite end of the spectrum oh man they shit all over star wars guys i i hate what they did look i'm a huge star wars fan obviously being born in 76 star wars my was my shit and the first three videos or movies which was really the other in the middle it doesn't matter but the original ones were my favorites, and then the three came out, which I actually did like. It they weren't bad. I mean, some of the characters like Jar Jar was a little, you know, why just why? But those weren't bad. But everything after that has been absolutely shit, shit. Anyways, let's get back in the video. Honestly, I'm so over this fucking movie at this point, and I imagine you are too, but when it comes to scripts that break just about every writing rule in the book, TLJ is pretty much the pinnacle of bullshit. I'm not going to waste time bemoaning all of the film's various problems, but for the sake of this video, let's just focus in on one little aspect of setup and payoff. The main plotline revolves around a group of resistance ships trying to escape from the First Order, who now have- Boys, hit that like button for Johnny. Let's see if we can't get some more people in here. Guys, hit like share if you want to but definitely hit like or dislike i don't care 
have the ability to track them through hyperspace. The only option for the resistance fleet now is to flee at top speed until they exhaust their fuel. Now, let's just ignore all the problems this creates for the Star Wars universe and, well, accept it as being true. At the climax of the movie, with the final resistance ship almost out of fuel, they load all of their personnel onto small, unarmed transports, which they want to use to evacuate to a nearby planet. Now, audience members with an IQ higher than that of a grape were probably asking, won't the First Order spot them leaving and blow them up? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they would. Clearly, the writers anticipated this question too, because it's so obvious that you literally can't avoid it, and so an explanation was required. The First Order was tracking our big ship. They're not monitoring for the transports. Really? And how do you know this? Because I'm genuinely struggling to think of reasons why they wouldn't be on the lookout for small ships trying to escape at a time like this. It would seem like a very obvious precaution for even the most inexperienced enemy commanders to take. Yeah, I mean, like, from a military standpoint, guys, like, that would be the first thing you think of, is a jettisoned escape pod, something along those lines. Uh, that's what you look for. You see how the script now has to come up with a flimsy explanation for why its characters are doing something so incredibly stupid and dangerous? Because it never took the time to set up any of these events earlier, the whole thing now hangs on a single line of dialogue from a character who absolutely shouldn't know this stuff. Then it gets even worse because the script calls for the transports to get discovered after the resistance gets betrayed. So now we have to switch up the situation again, which leads to this incredible piece of dialogue. So we checked on the information from the thief. We ran a decloaking scan and sure enough, 30 resistance transports are just launched from the cruiser. Again, people with functional brains probably had a lot of questions at this point, such as, what the fuck is a decloaking scan? Why has such a device never been mentioned or even referenced before? If such a thing exists and you have the ability to use it, why wouldn't you be using it all the time? Always, like, wouldn't that shit be turned on all the time? You'd always be looking for people that were cloaking, because if you could decloak, wouldn't you decloak? Just in case. Why wouldn't you be using all of your scanning equipment and maximum potential when you're literally in the middle of an active combat situation. Where exactly did the movie even mention that the transports were cloaked to begin with? I mean, they look pretty fucking visible to me. If Leia had mentioned earlier that they were cloaked, it might have given them a better chance of survival and made their plan seem less ridiculous. But then, if they have possession of cloaked transport ships this whole time, why wouldn't they have used them to escape before now? Can other ships cloak themselves? <laughs> the questions are abound, guys. Boy, they ruined Star Wars. The whole thing. I mean, they just... <sighs> What's funny is I've talked to a few younger folks that are like, yeah, I love the new Star Wars and this and that. And I'm like, man, there was a time before all of this was CGI that they relied heavily on the story and the drama and the protagonist in the story and, you know, all of the feelings and emotions these people were going through throughout the storyline. Now it's all just a big CGI clusterfuck. It seems like that would be a pretty useful ability in a galactic war. You see how all of these questions could have been avoided if the writers had taken the time to set up any of this stuff in advance? Instead of a carefully constructed narrative that makes sense and obeys its own rules, you instead have a series of dodgy, single-line attempts to fix problems that didn't need to exist in the first place. And those fixes are so flawed and short-sighted that they themselves give rise to yet more problems that have to be hastily patched over. 
Basically, it boils down to an escalating series of storytelling failures brought about by a complete lack of planning and an unwillingness to go back and rework something that's clearly broken. It's the writing equivalent of digging a hole to fill in another hole. And each time you pull shit like this, you chip away at your audience's investment in your story because they realise that at any moment, some random bullshit device or character that's never been mentioned before could pop up and completely undo everything that's happening. It's the cheapest, lamest, laziest form of writing. Those were the good old days, Rusty. The absolute good old days. 66, good to see you again. Quite unimaginable. And it still boggles my mind that ridiculous nonsense like this made it through a major studio with hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. But then, it's not exactly an isolated example these days. Smart, subtle, well-constructed setup and payoff like I showed you you earlier feels like a dying art in modern filmmaking where the focus is increasingly put on spectacle, action, snarky humour and above all quick results. Just get more content out there guys, that way we can get them excited for the next product before they start thinking too much about how shit this one is. For me bad writing is the one aspect of filmmaking that I have zero tolerance for. Visuals can be let down by budget shortcomings, performances are dependent on the actors involved, but writing is the one thing you have total and complete control over and the writing is so critical guys that and you know this i mean you older guys certainly know this but that's what made the story like that's what it was about is the feeling between these people it wasn't about just some big cgi masturbation where they showed you things blowing up and you know it, it was so much about the writing and the emotion in the movie so it's the one thing you have total and complete responsibility for, and if you still manage to fuck it up, then you've got no one to blame but yourself. I don't know man, it just feels kind of disheartening to realise that a low budget monster movie from 30 years ago had more care, thought and attention put into it than most of the 200 million dollar mega blockbusters we get today. I think it's part of the reason that, for all the money they rake in, most modern films don't stay with us a minute longer than their runtime. They're just dumb, formulaic sludge, churned out by the same battery farm studio process as every other generic movie, for the simple reason that there's no real incentive for them to be any better. As long as people keep paying to see them. And that's the thing, people keep paying for this shit. Like, I don't understand it. I guess maybe they're sending their kids to the theaters to get them out of the house so the parents can mess up or whatever people do nowadays. But this is garbage. Why are people spending money on this? I mean, I know visually it's stunning, but visually leaves so much more to be desired in terms of just thought or clever writing. I mean, the idea that you could have these movies and go out there and storyline, guys, storyline is critical, critical, critical. Studios will take the path of least resistance that allows them to make as much money as possible with the least amount of efforts. I might blame them for the shit writing they churn out, but ultimately, well, we're the ones who let them get away with it. Anyway, that's all I've got for today. Go away now. You know, as I sift through the endless river of... Don't worry, boys. The whole playlist is queued up. They're just going to keep going, and we're just going to keep watching this Critical Drinker, which is a great YouTube channel. If you want to go check out my buddy over there, make sure to hit like, comment, and subscribe. Tell him Gone with John sent you if you want to. But great guy, Scottish guy, and a uh, little bit of an album, but that's fine. 
sludge that passes for modern entertainment, I'll occasionally come across an unexpected gem glistening in the murky depths. Like Dune, for example, which proved to be a thoughtful, slow-paced and philosophical adaptation of some pretty challenging source material. But one thing that leapt out at me while I was watching it was, holy shit, isn't it nice when characters act like smart, mature adults who make sensible decisions, control their emotions, and actually take the time to consider and nobody controls their emotions anymore, guys. The evil guys, they used to be, remember like Darth Vader, he used to be really insidious and he was very stoic and quiet and unless he had to like choke somebody out or whatever, but that was what it was. But he never got like emotional and whiny and bitchy and but, like look at Kilo Ren, however you say the fucking name, I don't, I'm not a fan of those movies, but very emotional and out of control and flying off the handle and no balls, no man behavior to him at all, just a, a crybaby. Very, and a, this is true in a lot of the Marvel movies now. You'll see a lot of the bad guys are actually like not so necessarily tough. They're all kind of like insecure and they're, you know what I mean? Like, you'll see it. Consider their situation instead of ridiculous hyperactive teenagers driven by hormones and emotions that have somehow inherited the bodies of grown adults. It seems like some kind of crazy luxury from a bygone era now, but it brought me to a pretty interesting conclusion about why modern movies suck harder than Tatiana after two lines of cocaine. They're Hello. written by children for children. Or rather, people with the intelligence, attention span, and emotional maturity of children. And this fundamental limitation filters through into everything they produce, which is fine if your idea of entertainment is eating Play-Doh and farting in the bathtub, but for anyone looking- Doberman, what's up, brother? Good to see you. Good to see you, man. Welcome to the show. Looking for something just a bit smarter and more subtle, it's a bit like going to a burlesque show, except the dancers all look like Elizabeth Warren, and they want to spend the evening talking to you about federal tax reform. Anyway, allow me to illuminate you. For the purposes of this video, I'm going to lift some examples from Star Trek over the years. It's a franchise that's been around longer than most of us have been alive, so it's probably a good reflection of how writing and character development have changed over the years. First up, let's take a look at The Wrath of Khan from 1982, which is generally regarded as the best Star Trek movie ever made. The basic story is that an aging Admiral Kirk is given command of the Enterprise again when an old enemy hijacks a Federation starship and uses it to get his hands on a doomsday weapon that can destroy entire planets. All along the way, he also intends to dish out a bit of good old-fashioned payback on Kirk as revenge for leaving him stranded on a barren planet decades earlier. There's a lot going on here in terms of character development, but the central story arc for Kirk is his struggle with getting older. The movie- I would also like to point out that that revenge was the downfall, was his downfall, guys. And the only reason I say that is because I try to teach men stuff here and get them to think about things like, you know, not revenge. You know what I'm saying? Like, just walk away. You guys get it. He opens up on his 50th birthday, and it's clear he's not- uh-oh. Uh-oh, we may be having internet issues, boys. Looks like the modem is doing its thing pretty decently. Not exactly thrilled about that fact. He's very much a middle-aged man now, stuck in an unrewarding desk job and facing up to the realization that his best days may be behind him. McCoy even gives him a pair of reading glasses as a birthday gift because he's too proud to admit that his eyesight isn't what it used to be. 
Overall, it's a pretty universal concept that most people can relate to and empathise with. I mean, how many of us are trapped in some boring office job we don't enjoy, wishing we could live a life of adventure and endless possibilities? How many of us are getting... SCE, what's up, brother? ...older and realising we can't do the things we used to do, and that other, younger people are slowly coming up to replace us? Deep down, we all know it's going to happen sooner or later, even if we'd rather not think about it. Now consider a similar scene that Star Trek Beyond... And that in itself, guys, let's just hold up now. That in and of itself, that younger people are coming up to replace us. I mean, what a scary thought. The idea that these younger people that we see nowadays will eventually be the ones to... Um... Oh, good Lord. Anywho, let's get back in. One from 2016 rips off... I mean, pays tribute to... It's the same basic setup of Kirk and his friend McCoy celebrating his birthday over a quiet drink, and a subdued Kirk reflecting unhappily on where he's at in life. The difference here, though, is that this version of Kirk is 36 years old, and he's in command of a starship out exploring the galaxy. He's literally in the prime of his life, doing the things he enjoys most. He should be loving every single minute of it, but because the movie wants to set him up as a reluctant hero who's thinking about moving on to new things, the best it can come up with is to project the middle-aged angst of Wrath of Khan onto a character who's at a completely different stage in life. It doesn't ring true in the slightest because it's trying to force a situation that can't happen organically. Now consider the ending for Wrath of Khan. With his ship crippled and most of his crew dead, Khan triggers a doomsday device in a last-ditch attempt to take his enemy down with him. The desperate situation forces Spock to sacrifice himself to repair the Enterprise's warp core, allowing them to escape the blast at the cost of his own life. Kirk's forced to watch his best friend die in front of his eyes, unable to help him, and it's interesting to watch his reaction as the realisation sinks in. He doesn't scream or cry out or lose control. He or act like a bitch. He just kind of slumps to the ground, devastated and shocked as the camera slowly pans away. Morning, Dutch. And when it's time to lay his friend to rest, he delivers the eulogy with stiff but stoic composure, only wavering once at the very ends. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most... human. What? And storyline, guys, they, when they used to write these things, there was actual emotion in there. Fantastic. Why? Because he's a grown-ass man, and he's the captain of a starship. He's expected to lead by example and hold himself together, whatever his personal feelings, because that's how professional officers conduct themselves. And that little moment when his composure slips becomes all the more poignant, because you know how hard he's trying to hide it. Now let's consider how this same scene plays out in Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, I think you begin to see the difference here. Not only does Kirk's death happen in the midst of a ridiculous action scene with starships crashing into cities, buildings getting flattened, and people dying by the tens of thousands, thus giving the audience no time to process it before it's swiftly undone with a bit of cheap Deus Ex Trifica. But it's also very clear that the characters in whatever passes for modern Star Trek very much wear their hearts on their sleeves, running around like frantic lunatics in emergencies, openly discussing personal relationships in front of 
superior officers and responding with big emotional outbursts in high-stress situations. It's quite a contrast from the more mature and restrained characterizations from the earlier movies. As another example, let's consider how characters handle interpersonal conflict. Like in this scene from Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, where it's revealed that due to a major industrial disaster, the Klingon Empire is on the verge of collapse and is now making peace overtures towards the Federation. Naturally, this causes quite the difference of opinion about how to handle the situation, with the more hardline officers seeing this as a chance to eliminate their most dangerous enemies once and for all. The more forward-thinking elements, on the other hand, want to negotiate an honourable peace rather than push their opponents into a corner and risk... A great idea, guys. I mean, we could use a lot of that in the Manosphere area. You know what I'm saying? A little bit of come together. SCE says, let them die. Great line, man. Destructive military conflict. Both perspectives have merit, and the script is smart enough to let them have their say, before revealing that Kirk has been personally chosen by Spock to lead the diplomatic initiative. Naturally, he's not happy about being railroaded into a mission like this, partly because of his professional mistrust of the Klingons, partly because he's an aging commander who fears the rapidly changing world around him, but also because he has a very personal reason to hate them. David? David is dead. All of these elements combine together to create a strong and very understandable emotional reaction. You can see how fucking angry he is with his friend, the way he stands at the opposite end of the table, keeping a safe distance between them. At first it starts with cold accusations, but when Spock tries to argue his case rationally, the real emotions start to come through. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. Until at last it all becomes too much and Kirk finally shows his true colours. They are dying. Let them die. It's a smart, well-written scene that demonstrates the changing dynamics between the two friends and actually paints Kirk in a pretty unflattering light without completely destroying him as a character. He's an old, bigoted, reactionary officer from a different era, afraid of change, still licking old wounds, and unable to see past his own prejudices. Great point. I had somebody ask me this a minute ago. You may have noticed that some people have a little Gone With John skull next to their name in the chat and comments and stuff. Those people are members of the members area. It's $3 a month. You can join if you want to. In the members area, I post videos about my personal life that I don't put here on YouTube because I can be more myself there. Here I just act a fool on the live streams and then I try to be a little more serious on most of the regular videos. I did show a complete tour of the studio here with the green screen and the big softbox lights and the umbrella lights. And but that's why they have the little skull next to their name. Somebody asked, how do I get a skull next to my name? If you want the Gone with John Skull, join the members area. It's next to the subscribe button. Anyways. And yet, you absolutely understand why he feels this way. Just like the debate during the briefing earlier, neither side is portrayed as strictly right or wrong. They're just different perspectives, born from different experiences, and both are definitely worth listening to. But what's most important to note here is how the two men actually conduct themselves. They're controlled, rational and measured, arguing their points effectively and not simply shouting over each other. Yeah, Kirk's definitely got an emotional stake in this, which quickly comes through as Spock presses him, but even then he manages to keep himself mostly under control. Why? Because that's how grown fucking men deal with things. Real men don't fly off the handle at the slightest provocation or start fighting and yelling at each other when they did. You know what I'm saying, guys? Like, this is this is key. Acting like an adult, acting like a man is, um, you know, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you want to blow up and, like, show that you could easily do damage and deal the hit points. But 
you know, yeah, man, calm down a little bit. Anyways, back into the video. Disagree, because losing control like that isn't a sign of strength. It's a sign of deep weakness and insecurity. Weakness of character, weakness of self-control, and weakness of self-discipline. Now let's consider how Kirk and Spock resolve their differences in the new version of Star Trek. No, Brandon, no feet pictures yet, but I will get on that. I gotta shave the toes. You know you get that hair on the top of it. I gotta be sexy if I'm gonna do feet pictures, guys. For fuck's sake. The last example I want to give you is how the chain of command operates in different eras of Star Trek. In the episode Gambit from Star Trek The Next Generation, the captain and first officer of the Enterprise are both out of action, leaving Data to take command of the ship and Worf to act as his first officer. It's a change of role for both men, and unfortunately, Worf doesn't take too well to this, openly questioning his decision. No, SCE, I haven't opened the OnlyFans yet, but as I get hungrier for more YouTube fame, just kidding, I don't care about the fame, that's why I wear glasses, but as I get hungrier to build and grow in life and do things and maybe one day get a couch or a big screen TV here at the apartment, I am considering an OnlyFans page. Obviously, I'm not, guys, but what a world that would be. Johnny's junk up on the screen. I can almost see it now. Decisions in front of the bridge crew Finally. This prompts Data to summon him to his ready room for a good old-fashioned ass-kicking. Like my previous examples, the great thing about this scene is how restrained and understated these two characters are. They don't yell at each other or come to blows because they don't need to. Da oh my. <laughs> Data calmly but firmly explains that Worf was wrong to question him in front of the crew. You continually question my orders in front of the crew. That is a CGA reference, I would imagine, guys. I do not believe this is appropriate behavior. Worf offers a justification for his behavior. Is it not my duty to offer you alternatives? And Data lets him know that shit isn't going to fly with him. But once I have made a decision, it is your job to carry it out, regardless of how you may personally feel. Mm. And guess what? Worf recognizes that he was in the wrong, apologizes for it, and the two men go back to work with no hard feelings. Like men. No bitchiness, no emotion, no, oh, you made me feel, no, 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 no. If you will overlook this incident, I would like to continue to consider you my friend. I would like that as well. Holy shit, imagine two people dealing with interpersonal conflict like calm adult professionals. Whoever wrote the dialogue for this scene deserves a fucking medal. It's an absolute masterclass in the subtle enforcement of command and authority, mixed Ooh. in with the conflict between two friends having to adjust to a sudden change of roles. Yeah. Without even having to raise his voice or resort to personal attacks, Data is able to perfectly explain the mutually supportive relationship between a captain and his first officer. Like a fucking man. Sir, and make it clear that he ex I mean, he's a robot, but you get it. expects that same level of support from Worf. Disrespect will not be tolerated. And as a contrast to that, consider how the chain of command operates on a show like Star Trek Discovery. Now you get off my ass so we can get back to work. This shit would hit the fan. Well done, number one. I'd like to take a number two all over the uh, this new Star Trek, quite frankly. It's freaking amazing. Excuse me. Freaking amazing. Evolution's a fickle bitch, am I right? I'm going, I'm going, get off my ass! 
I love how these people are able to just say and do whatever the fuck they want with zero repercussions, casually backchatting their commanding officers, and generally acting like immature morons. Seriously, the level of discipline and professionalism here is about the same as a fucking liberal arts college. They're like Ew. teenagers that have suddenly been put in command of a starship with no training or preparation. They're impulsive, hyperactive, emotionally unstable, unprofessional, and generally pretty incompetent. They're the absolute last people on earth you'd trust your life to, and unfortunately, they've become kind of the norm in modern film and TV. So why the fuck does this keep happening? What happened to all the adults in the room? Well, from my point of view, there's three different strands to this answer. The first is a simple one. Money. Most effects-heavy movies are expensive as fuck to make now, and if your film doesn't rake in a shit zillion dollars, then you might as well start learning to code. You need to appeal to as wide an audience as possible, particularly the younger demographic, which- And that's the, the big idea, guys, is they want to appeal to the younger guys. The younger youth, you know what I'm saying? They they don't care about storyline and all these things that look, a lot of us guys read up, you know, grew up, excuse me, reading books, watching movies with these amazing storylines and protagonists and things happening that got our mind thinking. But these kids today, everything's in front of them on a screen and it's gotta be boom, right here, right now, right all you know what I'm saying? No story, no feelings, no emotion, no imagination. Because if you put everything in front of them, you can show them what to think without getting them to think. And they don't want people thinking anymore. Like thought has become the great enemy of this society. They want to tell you what to think. They want to lead you into an emotion. They don't want you thinking that shit on your own. That's dangerous. Which means lots of action, lots of energy, lots of jokes, quippy dialogue, and fast-paced storylines that don't demand too much brain power. No time to waste, people. Go, go, go. The second strand is this weird trend towards infantilizing modern audiences, carefully shielding them from anything that could be considered difficult, scary, or threatening. Whether it's public information videos, commercials, or government announcements, everything's Aren't they all government announcements, really, though? It's presented in this weird, childish, happy, clappy format that looks like the sort of inoffensive crap you'd show to kindergartners. Take this US Army recruitment video. No shit, guys. This is an Army video. Remember when we were a little younger, guys, and the Army videos that were like, it was the tough guy, and it was the guy you aspired to be like that man, and he had shit handled and weaponry and you wanted to be one of those, you were like, yeah, I'll sign up for that shit any day of the week. This is... This is for example, Jesus, take a second to think about the kind of person this video is going to appeal to. Then imagine how well that person would do in a fucking war. With bullets flying by and shit exploding and the guy next to you's femur is throwing blood across the... You know what I'm saying? Like, this is not... The final and probably biggest strand is the people hired to actually write this stuff. I've said before that a character is only ever as smart, capable, and resourceful as the person writing them, and well, you don't need me to tell you that Hollywood creatives these days aren't exactly paragons of tough, stoic, confident self-reliance. They're the kind of people who consider mean tweets to be on- Ooh, true blood. Great point, brother. Great point. Emotional people are easy to lead by the nose. That's why I tell you men on all my other videos that we talk about emotions. Women will try to drag you into a, their emotional playground because when you're emotional, you make terrible decisions and you're easy to manipulate. Not just you, but me also, guys. Great point, Brandon. Holy shit, dude. 
on par with mass murder. In fact, most of them have lived the kind of safe, comfortable, sheltered lives that previous generations could only dream of, never experiencing anything even resembling hardship, adversity, or danger. The kind of stuff that actually builds character, self-confidence, life experience, and generally makes you a more interesting, capable person. Beautifully said. The end result of all this is a generation of writers that are weak, fragile, spoiled, narcissistic, emotional and insecure, completely unable to handle adversity, conflict, masculinity or anything that challenges their own self-image. In short, Ooh. they're basically children inhabiting adult bodies and as a result they lack the experience and maturity needed to write smart, confident, capable adult characters. And well, look at the results. It's bad enough for people like me who still remember what quality writing looks like and now have the dubious pleasure of watching previously smart, mature characters get bastardized, infantilized, and destroyed. But Just destroyed, guys. Boy, they're shitting on everything. And rather than make any new stories or storylines where they actually talk about new ideas, new worlds, and to inhabit, and all this other shit, now they just rape, excuse me, great YouTube, um, all of the old stuff, like the good stuff. Like, have you, did you guys see the latest uh, Indiana Jones film? I mean, you know, Star Wars, they're ruining everything, guys. What's even more disheartening is the effect this is having on people who don't have that solid foundation to fall back on. The ridiculous infantile shite that today's writers produce is helping to shape and influence a whole new generation of young moviegoers, changing their perception. Dutch, this is Critical Drinker. If you do enjoy his video that we're watching today, feel free to check him out. Subscribe to his channel after this live stream. Don't go over there right now, but... We're going to watch a few more of his videos about the ruining of movies and Hollywood going nuts. And yeah, Critical Drinker, if you guys want to throw him a subscription. If you do subscribe or comment on one of his videos, tell him that Gone with John sent you. He'll get a kick out of that. ...of what supposedly heroic characters should be and do. And if that's the case, I can't fucking wait to see what happens when they get out into the world. Any Mountain Monk, good morning, buddy. Anyway, Alienated, good to see you too. That's all I've got for today. Go away now. When I made my first video about why modern movies suck a few weeks back, I kind of pictured it as a one-shot deal, a chance to vent my spleen about something that's been irritating me for some time now, so I could get back to doing what I do best, forcing hostages to battle to the death in illegal underground fighting tournaments. Wait, what? But the more I thought about it, the more I began to realise that the problems with filmmaking today are bigger and more complicated than I could tackle in one video. A series- These nuts! Welcome to the show, nuts! ...was needed. A series that could methodically tackle each problem in turn, shedding light on just how fucking shady modern writers are, and exposing their misdeeds for all the world to see. And when it comes to shitty behaviour in modern films, there's few more egregious offences than bringing back established, well-known, heroic characters beloved by generations. Ghost Shura. Welcome, Ghost. Good to see you again, guys. Ghost is one of the newest members of the Gone with John members area. If you want to join, it's $3 a month. You don't have to, but there's a lot of my personal life and personal shit and how I do all of this movie magic here on YouTube. If you're interested in that kind of thing, you'll also get a little uh, Gone with John skull, which was Ghost Shura's idea, guys. He hit me last night and said, hey, how about personalized icons for the members? Great fucking idea, dude. My bad for taking so long. Let's get back to the show. 
corporations of moviegoers and systematically degrading, discrediting and destroying not just who they are now, but everything they once were, usually in a desperate attempt to elevate some cheap, soulless carbon copy replacement that lacks everything which made the original so appealing in the first place. It's a cheap, shitty thing for any writer to do, and yet it seems to be happening at an alarming rate these days. Modern Hollywood likes to refer to this process as deconstruction, mostly because it sounds more palatable than fucking over, but that's exactly what it amounts to. But hey, if that's the case, then prepare to be thoroughly deconstructed by the drinker, Hollywood. Now, it would be pretty much impossible for me to cover a subject like this without mentioning the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Remember Han Solo? Remember how he started out as a selfish, cynical smuggler who only cared about number one, but gradually transformed over the course of three movies into a smart, resourceful military leader, a brave fighter, a loving protector for Leia, and a hero willing to risk everything to help his friends? Pretty cool, right? So it was kind of weird to reconnect with him 30 years later, only to find out he'd reverted to a cynical, self-absorbed smuggler who'd somehow lost track of his own ship, a deadbeat dad who'd abandoned his wife and son, and an incompetent criminal who'd made enemies all across the galaxy. The man was well into his 60s by this point, but he was somehow less experienced, competent and mature than when we first met him. All of his experiences, character development and achievements have been rendered completely moot. Now he has to be constantly helped and bailed out by non-diverse female space Jesus. That's non-diverse, politically correct space Jesus. Also, I would just like to say this. I know everyone hates on Rey and I'm not a fan of the new Star Wars-y types. And, uh, not as much anyways, but uh, she was foldable. I will just, I'm look. Now he has to be constantly helped and bailed out by non-diverse female space Jesus, who has to rescue him from a tense standoff with rival crime lords. And fix his ship when he doesn't know how to do it himself. What'd you do? I bypassed the compressor. Then when she gets captured by incompetent cartoon bad guys and Han and the gang head off to break her out, she instead rescues herself while he gets a lightsaber shoved through his fucking chest by not Darth Vader. What's a fucking great end for the character? Or how about Luke Skywalker? You remember him, right? The protagonist who went from a humble farm boy to a heroic adventurer, taking on terrifying enemies. Uh-oh, internet's shitting again. Whoops, sorry boys. We're working on that. We're going to take care of all of these little technical glitches and uh, it should fix itself eventually. I apologize. Anyways, I would like to say Luke was the shit back in the days, guys. He was, you know, the kind of hero you'd want to watch again and again and again. What's going on with the fucking internet? Oh, man. Anyways, let's see who's in the chat right now while the, uh, we're figuring this damn thing out. Guys, good to see you guys. Uh-oh, looks like the show's back. Gabe, 66, Dutch is in here. Good to see you guys. Anyways, back to the show. Overcoming adversity and losses, and ultimately rising to the challenge to turn Darth Vader back to the light and save the entire galaxy? Remember his thirst for adventure and excitement? 
Remember how he never gave up, no matter how difficult things got. And remember the compassion and restraint he showed, even if it cost his own life. Yeah, well, now he's a grumpy old man drinking green alien titty milk on fucking craggy islands. Just like Han Solo, he ran away from his life and responsibilities when things got hard, promptly forgot all the lessons he'd learned and became a bitter, cynical recluse who's sitting around waiting to die. He won't help anyone, he won't try anything, he won't leave Craggy Island, and he doesn't want non-diverse female space Jesus to try anything either. He's got nothing to teach her, nothing to inspire her, and he even gets beaten and humiliated by her in a lightsaber fight. He hates his legacy, he hates the Jedi, he hates himself. He's the epitome of bleak, hopeless, nihilistic futility, and he's the exact polar opposite of everything the original Luke Skywalker represented. The intended messages in both cases is pretty clear. The heroes that you used to look up to will ultimately end up failing, regressing into their old ways, and letting you down. And to be honest, they really weren't all that good to begin with, so you this is Hollywood ruining movies again, telling you all the things that you liked before were really bad and they really weren't good and it just, Jesus Christ. You need to stop looking up to them and just forget about them now. But do you know who is good? Do you know who'll never fail at anything or regress into their old ways? The woman. Because they don't have any, because they don't actually have a personality. Or let anyone down. <laughs> That's right. She's your hero now, because she's stronger, and smarter, and braver, and because we say so. Don't question it, just accept the new programming and move on. But it's not like this kind of thing is confined to Star Wars. Consider Sarah Connor from the Terminator franchise. And I mean the real Sarah Connor, not this small child cosplaying as her. Sarah's one of the greatest action heroes of all time, starting out as a simple waitress working in LA, only to become the target of a murderous time-traveling assassin from the future, and discover that she's destined to give birth to the future leader of the human race. A man, by the way, guys. You know, John Connor, you get it. Pretty heavy, huh? That's right, Marty, it is. The point here, yeah, here is that Sarah is forced to adapt to her new reality very quickly. She's been thrust into a world of violence and danger that she's completely unprepared for. She's been saddled with the knowledge of the grim future that awaits her. Yeah, Carrie Fisher back in the day in the Leia costume, for sure, but not so much the uh, older one. You know what I'm saying? With the gray drinks. Humanity and the heavy responsibility of knowing the fate of the human race depends on her survival. When we reunite with her in Terminator 2 about 10 years later, she's completely transformed herself into a kick ass survivalist. She's physically stronger, she's trained and prepared, but the trauma of her past experiences, combined with her knowledge of the coming war, has left her emotionally damaged and estranged from her son. But when he becomes the target for a brand new and more dangerous Terminator, she's forced to rise to the occasion once again, this time fighting alongside her most hated and feared enemy. And it creates an interesting arc for her character. Not only is she a soldier fighting to preserve a vital asset, but more importantly, she's a mother fighting to protect her son, gradually reconnecting with him. Mothers don't really do that as much nowadays, do they? I mean, most of the modern mothers and single mothers out there are not necessarily fighting to protect the uh, sons so much. In fact, a lot of them are aborting the sons. You guys understand. Quick commercial break. Make sure to hit the cash app, guys, here to donate to the show. Or you could drop a super chat if you'd like to. Or you can, whatever, buy some merch at the merch store. Link is scrolling across and in the description. And thank you very much. Or you can join the members area. Lots of good stuff going on in the members area. 
over the course of the movie, and that maternal side of her slowly becomes the dominant motivator, like in this scene where she berates the scientist who's destined to create Skynets. I don't know what it's like to really create something, to create a life. Feel it growing inside you. All you Ugh. know how to create is death and destruction. Mom! By the end, she's managed to move past her grief and emotional trauma, save her son's life, and even put aside her mistrust of the Terminator. Midnight, good to see him. The movie ends with Sarah looking ahead to the unknown future, ready to meet it with renewed hope and optimism. Wow, what a perfect fucking ending for the character. It'd be a real shame if they totally fucked it up like 30 years later. Oh. Not only does John Connor get brutally killed in the first five minutes of the movie, thus erasing everything the series has been about up until now, but Sarah herself turns into a bitter, alcoholic old killer, hunting Terminators because she's got nothing better to do. John has now been replaced as the future saviour of humanity by this diminutive kidlet, and watching her- Alright, look, hold on. Let's just, let's just talk about this. So John Connor, who was definitely the savior of the whole human ordeal because, well, people from the future said so, and they were from the future, and by future I mean they definitely knew that he was the was replaced by this female who nobody in the future previously knew that this female... I hate what they've done to movies, guys. I absolutely hate what they've done to movies. It's sad. Our try to talk tough is just the funniest thing ever. Is that our fate? Well, fuck fate. <laughs> and of course, Sarah is completely outclassed in every respect by androgynous thing. See, she's taller and she's got bigger muscles and shorter hair, so that makes her better, right? Oh, and remember that maternal side to Sarah's character that was such a French guy, good to see you, brother. Fundamental driving force behind her actions in the previous movie, making her capable of acts of incredible bravery, heroism, and sacrifice. Because really, what's more pure and altruistic than a mother's love for her child? Yeah, that's gone the way of John Connor in this movie. Now she's just angry and resentful that people like her and Danny simply have to give birth to the most important leaders in human history, rather than being the all-powerful leaders themselves. Are you serious? What kind of fucking kindergarten psychology is this? I'm mad because I don't get to be the biggest and most important person in the room. It's almost like movies today are written by children. But you see how every admirable, inspiring, heroic aspect of Sarah's character has been systematically retconned out of existence so that it becomes easier to replace her with new characters who are simply the bestest ever? Still don't believe me? Then allow me to present you with Creed as my final example. Now, a lot of people seem to like Creed as a movie, but the drinker sees it for what it really is. A cynical, soulless, unimaginative rehash of the very first Rocky movie that deconstructs not one but two beloved legacy characters. And if you want to know more about that, then watch my review. The Rocky we knew from the original movies was the very epitome of the heroic underdog. A tough, determined fighter who wasn't the biggest or the strongest or the most skilled, but always rose to the challenge through sheer grit and willpower. He was a trusting, optimistic kind of guy. We'll see you, Doberman. Good to see you again, brother. Take it easy. Who tried to see the best in everyone, and as a result, he usually brought out the best in them. He taught whole generations of kids the value of hard work, resilience, 
and always getting up, no matter how many times life knocked you down. Yep. But flash forward to Creed, and he's now a lonely old man, estranged from his son, mourning the loss of his wife Adrian, and facing up to the remainder of his life with no real sense of purpose. Adrian! Even though he faced and overcame literally all of these problems in Rocky Balboa like 10 years earlier, his despair is so complete that when he gets diagnosed with cancer, he refuses treatment because he simply doesn't want to go on living, and it's only Adonis Creed who gives him a reason to go on. Fuck off, Creed. You don't get to do this to The Rock. You don't get to step in at the 11th hour and totally wreck on his personality to fit the needs of your shitty fanfiction story. Rocky was a character entirely defined by his determination to keep going, no matter how hard life hit him. To always go one more round. It was literally the driving force behind every single movie, and now it's forgotten about so that Rocky can become some kind of pathetic charity case for Adonis to help out. The common factor in all of these examples is the very obvious attempt to undermine and reverse the very traits that made these heroic characters so compelling in the first place. Luke's optimism and bravery. Good point, SCE. Yeah, nobody's buying this shit anymore. Everything new that they're putting out is, well, woke and going broke, guys. Nobody's buying the new shit. And the less that people buy it, the hopefully the more that these people will stop making this garbage music um, movies you know what I'm saying? And music te technically. But you have to understand that the people that are putting these movies out don't like you. Like they don't like the average American person. They like the 3% of America that's different, shall we say. But they want the money from you guys and us guys and all of the regular ass Joe people and men and, you know, normal people. And But they don't like you. They just want your money. And they want to tell you how to think and get you to lean towards this narrative. But they can give a shit less about you. Just keep paying for this stuff, dummy. ...has been turned into pessimism and passivity. Sarah's maternal protectiveness has been replaced with bitterness and resentment at the role that was thrust upon her. Rocky's relentless drive and positivity has given way to despair and defeatism. All of these characters that used to exemplify the most positive aspects of human nature have been twisted and warped into obscene parodies of themselves, tarnishing not just who they are now, but who they once were as well. All of this has been done without... Good point, Dutch. Yeah, everybody fucks alone in the end. And that's how it happens for every man. I mean, technically, in the end, everybody ends up fucking you. The ex-wife, everything, your kids will be like, oh, well, you did this wrong, or you didn't do this, or you This is not uncommon. A shred of remorse or regret. And for fucking what? So you can replace them with your cheap plastic imitations, strong-arm audiences into liking the flavorless slop that you've managed to serve up, because you know you can never reach the same heights as them, so the only way to surpass them is to tear them down to your mediocre level. For yeah. me, this is one of the most disgusting hallmarks of modern screenwriting, the denigration of the past in a desperate attempt to elevate... They don't care that we care, but they do care where the money goes, because that's the whole reason they do this. They don't actually give a shit for the most part about the message. They just know that the message warriors, the ones that spend all day on Twitter and all this other shit, and will promote their movie if it's just enough. You know what I'm saying? Also, thanks to all of you guys watching the live stream today. If any of you are not speaking with a Scottish accent by the end of the day, I just I don't know what you're 
anticipate the present, the bastardization of other people's work to service your own, or as one of my subscribers so aptly put it, any fucking idiot with a hammer can destroy in minutes what a master artist took years to craft. Well, it turns out that Hollywood today is short of neither idiots nor hammers. The only question now is how many more works of art will they end up destroying? Anyway, that's all I've got for today. Go away now. One of the things that's become increasingly obvious in my time as a film critic is that when it comes to mainstream movies, we're pretty much living in a post-creativity world now, a time when it's considered easier and safer to just rehash previously successful ideas and formulas rather than risk coming up with something new and original. I've talked before about the endless remakes and reboots that Hollywood's been churning out for the past 10 years, apparently oblivious to the fact that about 90% of them fail, but one of the more insidious concepts to create into modern cinema is the idea of the soft reboots. Now don't get me wrong, I can totally understand why they're a thing. See, Hollywood isn't quite as dumb as you might That's a good point, Rusty. Yeah, guys, go out and check out uh, True Blood's channel if you haven't already subscribed. Throw him a sub. Thank you very much. I think when it comes to finding new and inventive ways to squeeze money out of tired old franchises, they know that producing direct sequels becomes increasingly difficult over time because every sequel comes with the unspoken expectation that you'll move the story and characters forward somehow, building on what came before and breaking new ground in some way. Boy, they just raped Captain America altogether, didn't they, guys? I don't know if you guys know this or have seen this or if I'm spoiling it for you or ruining it, but boy, they just Captain America. Way. And if you're a dumb as fuck screenwriter without an ounce of creativity or original ideas, then this is like garlic to a fucking vampire. A full-on remake, on the other hand, comes with its own set of problems, because not only does it invite unflattering comparisons to the original, but it also means launching your new movie without those all-important cameos from the original cast, which is one of the few things still guaranteed to get arses on seats. The solution? Combine the best elements of both ideas into one grift to rule them all. The soft reboots. So how exactly does it work? Well, after thinking it over while taking a shit earlier, I believe I've identified the five key elements of a soft reboot. One, find an old franchise. Ideally- a Thanks, Brando. Be careful, buddy. We'll see you later. A soft reboot should target a franchise that's at least a couple of decades old and hasn't seen any significant activity for quite some time. This increases the demand and excitement for new installments and allows our collective memory of past events to fade, which facilitates... Number two, loose continuity. It's going to be marketed as a conventional sequel, acknowledging the characters and events of previous movies, but leaving the continuity vague enough that the writers can safely ignore anything which contradicts their new film. Number three, nostalgia. It's likely to include lots of callbacks. Good point. These nuts. 1984 is a great book, but why bother reading it when you can go outside and just live it? in jokes and references to past events because nostalgia has become the new sex appeal it sells tickets boobs are still better though number yep. four cameos it'll include at least one appearance from a legacy character again for nostalgia purposes and to give the film a sense of legitimacy that it may or may not deserve number five Boy, ray was fuckable wasn't she sorry youtube sequel baits ultimately the point of a soft reboot is to pass Good. There goes the internet again, boys. Let's let that catch up to what we're doing over here. 
pass the torch to a new generation of younger, cooler, and most importantly of all, cheaper actors who can carry the franchise for the next decade, so the ending is likely to be as open as possible, paving the way for possible sequels, spin-offs, and TV shows. Basically, the goal here is to launch the next MCU. Now this all sounds uh. fair enough, right? After all, it's what movies do these days, but peel back this innocuous veneer and you'll find the rotten core that lies beneath. Because the more you think about the actual plot, the more you'll probably realise that it's nothing but a tired rehash of the same fucking story that already got told decades earlier. A remake in sequels clothing, if you will. You want some examples? Well, how about Jurassic World, which takes place a couple of decades after the events of Jurassic Park, and even uses the original buildings, vehicles, and equipment to milk those bloated nostalgia teats. But really, what does it do except tell the same fucking story all over again? Both movies focus on the theme of science going too far by resurrecting long-dead and extremely dangerous animals, and humanity's flawed belief that they can control them. Both centre around a futuristic theme park that promises great things, but ultimately turns into a nightmare when things get out of control. Both feature an idealistic park owner blinded by his own lofty dreams, a shady subordinate with his own agenda, a pair of young siblings thrust into a survival situation, a male and female lead with a romantic attraction who have to rescue them, raptors for some tight claustrophobic chase scenes, and a big scary monster dinosaur to act as the final boss. Jurassic World is, for all intents and purposes, a carbon copy of the original script, only with most of the intelligent themes and ideas chopped out to make way for goofy humour, character threads that go nowhere, and meta-references to the declining quality of sequels. Bigger. Scarier? Um, cooler, I believe is the word that you use in your... Memo. It's a textbook example of a soft reboot that's inferior to the original in every way possible, but it doesn't end there, dear viewer. Oh no, there's much worse to come. Like Star Wars The Force Awakens, which is set about 30 years after the events of A New Hope, and again tries to walk that fine line between exploiting the original events and characters for nostalgia purposes, while simultaneously hoping you'll forget them just enough that they can get away with telling the same fucking story all over again. Both films feature a young orphan living a simple life on a remote desert planet, only to get swept up in a grand space adventure when they rescue a droid carrying important information that the antagonists are desperate to recover. Both again. Both feature a masked antagonist with a red lightsaber and formidable force abilities, and his sinister master pulling the strings behind the scenes. Both feature an evil empire bent on galactic domination, with a planet-killing superweapon that has to be destroyed in the climactic space battle. And that's not even counting all the stuff that's just been blatantly copied over to cynically exploit fan nostalgia. Like X-Wings, because... Alright, we gotta pause it there, guys. Great question. Dutch brought up something, guys, that will... We can't let that go. We're going to have to address this. Who was more uh, you know, effable? Was it Ray or was it Leia? Look, I love look Leia and the little, uh, you know what I'm saying? She was, let's throw Padme in there too because of the old, you know. So Padme, Ray, or Leia, guys, put it in the comments. Which one was um, more foldable? You know what I'm saying? My personal, I'm going to lean towards Ray. Just, I don't know something about the brunette and the very skinny. I mean, you know, I, Leia was back in the day, but after seeing her as an older woman, it's hard for me to, I can't erase that. But, you know, Padme, probably, definitely Ray. I mean, anyways, throw in the comments down below, boys. We'll get back into the show. Sorry, sorry, sorry. They're cool, right? Or the Millennium Falcon, or Chewbacca, or Star Destroyers, or... Oh, shit, was something wrong with her teeth? 
didn't even realize there were the teeth jacked up. But no, again, sorry. Han Solo, or Princess Leia, or Anakin's lightsaber, which shows up here without any real explanation. The Force Awakens is perhaps the ultimate example of how easy it is to pull the wool over people's eyes, an utterly safe and predictable rehash of a previously successful story with flashy new special effects, and just enough characters, references and callbacks to the original to convince longtime fans that this movie is somehow on their side. It truly is a work of retarded genius from one of Hollywood's most successful conmen Man, and the Take it easy, these nuts. We'll see you next time, buddy. The real problem is that it paved the way for even worse things to come. See, the thing that Jurassic World and Force Awakens have in common is that they were both massively... <laughs> Todd Packer says he wants some Jar Jar action. Misa thinks you've been a bad boy, Todd Packer. Hmm successful. These two movies made obscene amounts of money, and the success at the box office sent shockwaves through the noble town of Hollywood, convincing executives everywhere that soft reboots of old franchises were a quick and easy way to make bank. Which is why we ended up with fucking garbage like Terminator Dark Fate, which accomplished in its first five minutes what no actual Terminator had managed to do in more than 30 years, killing off the character whose survival was central to the entire point of the series. It also retconned Terminator 3, Salvation and Genesis out of existence, and set up its own new continuity, which was basically the ex- Jar Jar, that tongue. Misa, oh, you are like exact same story as before. Once again, an AI in the near future becomes self-aware and launches an apocalyptic war against humanity, killing billions and turning the world into an irradiated wasteland, uh -huh. until a lone warrior unites the scattered fragments of mankind to strike back at them. Again? Once again, the machines on the verge of defeat are able to send a Terminator back in time to kill this future saviour of humanity before they can become a threat. Sure. And once again, a lone soldier is sent back by the human resistance to act as a protector. But it's totally different this time, you see, because now they're both girls. And they gotta, they gotta stop. They just, this has gotta stop at some point. I mean, you can't keep rewriting every good story and throwing a chick in there to make it's not. You ruin the whole story altogether, and not even like. It's not believable. Yeah. And because nostalgia is basically the only asset we have to work with now, a couple of old characters show up in a totally unrelated subplot that fits into the main narrative about as comfortably as an intersectional feminist at a Dave Chappelle gig. Ah, the internet. Darth Jar Jar would have been a better story. Very good. Point. If Force Awakens and Jurassic World showed how financially successful the concept of a soft reboot could be, then Dark Fate is a perfect example of how fucking badly it can go wrong. But the thing is, even spectacular failures like this weren't enough to derail the concept, which is why we ended up with Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, don't get me wrong, it was definitely a big step up from the disaster of Ghostbusters 2016, and I think... There was nothing wrong with the original Ghostbusters. The first two movies were brilliantly written. They were great. Usually a sequel sucks, but two was still really good. I mean, no need in redoing that at all, but I guess they just were going after the old cash tea to get a little bit more of that delicious, delicious power money. I think for the most part, it was a well-intentioned film, but I was also... 
probably more forgiven towards it in my review than it really deserved, because really it has all the hallmarks of a soft reboot coupled with absolutely shameless nostalgia baiting. Remember Gozer? Remember the Hellhounds? Remember the Keymaster and the Gatekeeper? Remember the Proton Packs? Remember the Ecto-1? Remember the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? Remember the PKE Meter? Remember the traps? Damn man, they even have the original Ghostbusters show up in the finale with absolutely no explanation for how they got here, why they're wearing their original uniforms, or where they found spare proton packs from. It's difficult to sum up the thinking behind this kind of writing, but helpfully enough, Red Letter Media did it for me. Don't ask questions. Just consume product and then get excited for next product. And I think ultimately that mantra pretty much sums up the rationale behind soft reboots. It's the same kind of mentality that expects people to spend hundreds or even thousands of dollars to upgrade to the latest shiny glass rectangle, which is functionally and visually almost identical to the shiny glass rectangle they bought 12 months earlier. But hey, I guess there's a sucker born every minute. You're not really meant to question how the same exact events keep playing out in the same narrative universe verses without anyone noticing it. You're not meant to question why existing characters get turned into completely different people to service their roles in the rebooted narrative. You're not meant to question how wildly implausible and downright ridiculous it is for so many artifacts from previous adventures to conveniently show up again. And you're definitely not meant to question how cheap and hollow and manipulative it all is. It's the writing equivalent of wanting to have your cake and eat it, shamelessly milking and exploiting the very thing you're shitting all over by retelling the same stories again and again. And the result is a kind of depressing stagnation in pop culture, a loss of confidence in our own creativity, and an increasing tendency to look back instead of forwards. Be honest here, how many songs nowadays are just a remix of some dance track from 10 or 20 years ago? How many kids' TV shows are just repackaged versions of the same stuff that my generation were watching as kids? How many movies today are reboots, remakes, reimaginings, or soft reboots of stuff that's already been done before and done better? I guess what I'm saying here is that while it's good to honour the past, sometimes the best way to do that is just to leave it the fuck alone and move forward on your own merits. If you actually give a shit about storytelling, then you should be creative and talented enough to tell your own stories. Stop using the past as a crutch to support your own mediocre work today. Make new things, invent new worlds and characters, strike out in new directions, be willing to take risks and face criticism and failure. That's what makes great stories and great people. And well, I think we could do with both of those things more than ever now. Anyway, that's all I've got for today. Now go, go away. away now. One of the great things about movies is that not only are they a fun escape from all the bullshit of everyday life, but they can also teach us important lessons about how to live those lives, like the value of friendship, camaraderie and loyalty, the dangers of... Something women typically know nothing about nowadays. Just thought I'd throw that in for, you know. Pride and arrogance, the importance of compassion and charity, or the meaning of determination and resilience. Movies have the unique ability to inspire and move us, and like I say, the lessons they teach us have influenced whole generations of people to do more than they ever thought possible, to reach higher, strive further, work harder and be more than they are. But they can also help to warn us against our darker impulses like selfishness, arrogance and hatreds. They're a bit like a set of moral scales that help to keep us balanced and level. But the problem with modern movies is that I've begun to notice the moral scale tipping in the wrong direction. Yeah, there's no more... The lessons they teach now aren't lessons. They just teach agendas. Ways that you should think. 
because it would benefit them. And trying to frame negative actions, decisions and messages in a positive light. Basically what this means is they're teaching people really shit lessons now, and if this sort of thing continues for too long, it's going to produce an entire generation of shitty people. I mean damn, just log into TikTok for five minutes and you'll see exactly what I mean. Luckily, yep. the drinker is here to help. And truly, who better to balance the scales of morality than a barely functional Scottish alcoholic who considers it a major win if he wakes up in his own house? So join me for another episode of Why Modern Movies Suck. Now, for our first example, let's take a look at the 1998 Disney animated movie Mulan. It's set in Imperial China and follows the story of a young woman who disguises herself as a man so that she can enlist in the army and help defend her country from foreign invaders. The movie quickly establishes her as a bit of a free spirit, yearning to escape her safe but dull life and find adventure and excitement, which was actually a pretty common thing for Disney princesses back then. Anyway, mm -hmm. like the other recruits, she gets put through some rigorous training to teach her how to be a soldier, and because she's smaller and weaker than the others, naturally she struggles to keep up with them. Her commanding officer doesn't think much of her, and neither do the other recruits. She even comes close to flunking out more than once. But she doesn't give up. That's the lesson. Like, back then there were lessons. You know, back when, well, I dare I say that men ran Disney and, you know, um, there were lessons, like it taught young women to continue to strive. Yes, you're not as strong as the men, but don't let that stop you. You can, you know, that was a lesson. That was something to strive for, but, oh, you'll see where they went with it. But through a combination of intelligence and sheer fucking determination not to give up, she's eventually able to turn situations to her advantage. She even wins over the respect of her commander and her ability to Respect, that's how respect worked. You didn't just respect someone because they had a vagina and showed up in a loud mouth. They proved themselves to you. And then you were like, oh shit, this chick's, she's, you know, she's about something. Not anymore, guys. To think quickly under pressure allows them to win a great victory over the enemy army. Mulan is actually a pretty good example of positive life lessons. The struggles and eventual successes of the main character demonstrate the value of determination and perseverance, even when the odds are against you. That a person's worth isn't defined by the size of their muscles, and even if you're not as big and strong as other people, it doesn't mean that you can't go on to achieve great things. It's all about playing the hand that you're dealt even if that hand doesn't seem as strong as other people's. Now consider the live-action remake of Mulan from a couple of years ago. The basic premise of the movie is the same. Foreign armies invade China, and because there's no men of fighting age in her family, Mulan disguises herself as a man so that she can join up instead. The difference, though, is in how the main character is presented and the challenges that she has to overcome. Because basically, there aren't any. Whereas the original Mulan was limited by her physical shortcomings and had to make up for them in other ways, gradually winning people over by refusing to back down, this new version is just fucking great at everything right off the bat. She's just as fast, just as strong, just as good at fighting as the others. Just as shit. In fact, if anything, she's probably better than them, because she was born with high levels of chi or something, which allows her to perform feats of agility and skill that border on the supernatural. And that doesn't teach a lesson to young women, or anybody really, for that matter, is back then the old movie was about she had to overcome these things, she had to grow as a person, she had to become stronger, she had to put in effort in order to get to that place. But now it's just she just shows up and immediately she's the best. And the men are like, oh, look at this one. Oh, my God, she's stronger and better and smarter than us. And please, please. 
So basically, all the challenges and problems that made life so difficult for the original Mulan are pretty much non-existent here. We'll see you, SE. Have a good day, buddy. Yeah. And well, it kind of undermines what used to be a pretty inspiring message. Whereas the original film taught people the value of hard work, determination, and perseverance, even if things aren't going in your favor, the new movie gives them a character that's just awesome because, well, she was born that way. She doesn't really have to earn her special abilities. She doesn't have to work hard or strive to overcome adversity. She just kind of does it because she already has what she needs. And shit, man, that seems like a pretty crappy lesson to apply to your own life. Like, imagine going into every situation firmly convinced that you're already perfect and you'll just naturally succeed because you already have what you need. A vagina. In fact, if anything, that reminds me more of Anakin Skywalker from the Star Wars prequels. So let's take a quick look at him, shall we? Anakin starts out as a good man who came from humble beginnings and has the potential to become the most powerful Jedi who ever lived. He's strong with the Force and quickly learns to develop his abilities, but his enormous potential and rapid rise to power gradually stokes a sense of arrogance, entitlement, and impatience. He now here's where I disagree with the drinker just a hair. Anakin needed to do this. This was a very important part of the storyline, if you know anything about that movie. I don't want to spoil it for you. It's like 20 years old. He needed to become the bitch. You know what I'm like? Emotional, unstable because of his emotion and because he was being consumed by the dark side and his need for vengeance on those that killed his mom. That He needed to be this unstable, emotional, in love. There's another big red flag. I don't know if you guys missed it or not, but it was when he was in love that he got all fucked up, so to speak. Sorry, YouTube. He feels like it's his destiny to reshape the world and make it a better place and quickly gets frustrated with anyone who stands in his way. Like the Jedi High Council, who caution him against moving too quickly, forming personal attachments and trying to take shortcuts to... Which was all great advice, all accurate and true and everything. But the idea that this blue pill, thank you, Todd, needed to not be and not go along with any of that and the knowledge, this is why he failed. This is why he became what he became, ultimately, was because of his inability to learn from elders. I digress. Also because he fell in love. Huge red flag. Power. This frustration, combined with a strong personal attachment to the people, Thank you, SCE. I'll check it out. Go close to him, makes him vulnerable to manipulation by sinister characters who want to use him for their own ends. And eventually, this combination of personal flaws and outside interference pulls him to the dark side of the Force, turning him against the people that love him most. And his inflated belief in his own superiority ultimately costs him everything. It's an interesting character arc that underlines the key message about Anakin's fall from grace. Taking the quick and easy route to power and success might give you short-term gains, but ultimately, it's going to lead to long-term losses and disaster. Skill and talent that isn't tempered by wisdom, restraint, and experience eventually leads to arrogance, impatience, and a dangerous overestimation of your own abilities. And well, look how that one turns out. It's a cautionary tale that warns us against the dangers of hubris and suggests that the longer, harder road is what builds character, resilience, and wisdom, the things that will serve you best in life. As a point of comparison, consider Anakin's modern-day counterpart, who basically has all of his strengths and potential, but none of his weaknesses or character flaws. Despite her enormous potential with the Force, and her abilities that just seem to come out of nowhere with... I'd like to show her some Force. Not that kind of Force, you too, but you get it. I mean, come on. 
no training or instruction, Ray never gives in to anger, impatience, hubris, or a lust for power. She's consistently portrayed as stoic, altruistic, compassionate, brave. You mean like a man? You mean like all of the men before her? You mean like all of the things that women and society in general today don't like about men? Yeah, exactly like that. Resourceful and pretty much perfect in every way. And fuck me, it's more boring than a low-budget Bruce Willis movie. Just like with the new version of Mulan, there's no particular challenge, obstacle, or shortcoming that Rey struggles to overcome. She already has everything she needs to succeed in life, and so there's nothing in particular to learn from her. Wow, what an inspiring example for all of us. And that's not even counting all the other horrendous life lessons to be learned from the new Star Wars movies, such as, you should always blindly trust authority figures and do exactly as they command, even if their orders make no sense and run contrary to everything you know to be right. Especially if they have pink hair or purple, whatever fucking color that old lady was. Battles and wars are won by protecting people you care about at all costs, even if that means preventing them from sacrificing themselves to save a much larger group of people that you care about. Running amok and randomly destroying property for a few minutes is the perfect way to enact meaningful social and political change on a planetary scale. Intent. Your family legacy and heritage is less important than who you are as an individual. You have no place in this story. You come from nothing. You're nothing. Oh wait, apparently your heritage does matter. You are a Palpatine. Oh wait, now you can just choose your own heritage or something. Ray Skywalker. I'm so fucking confused. Now allow me to direct your attention to Wonder Woman 1984, the sequel to the original Wonder Woman, which basically destroyed the character and the franchise that she was part of. Now, the plot for that movie is absolute nonsense, but for the sake of this video, the basic gist is that a magical object gets discovered which grants the wishes of anyone who touches it. Unfortunately, it usually takes something back in return. Wonder Woman chooses to be reunited with Steve Trevor, the man she fell in love with before he sacrificed himself like 70 years earlier. And wouldn't you know it, within a matter of hours, Steve shows up alive and well. Only, it isn't actually Steve, it's just his consciousness inhabiting the body of some random guy and wearing him like a fucking skin suit. And Wonder Woman is totally fine with this apparently. She even has sex with him when he's clearly not capable of consenting to it. Now, what if a man did something like that, guys? Wouldn't that be something? Take a moment to imagine how this would play out if the genders of these two characters were reversed. How it would go from a touching, poignant romance to a horrifying piece of sexual exploitation. The poor guy that she's now using as her own personal plaything was once an innocent man with friends, family, a life, hopes, dreams, and aspirations for the future, and she was happy for all of that to be erased. Hey, who's in here? Good to see you again, who? So that she could live out her fantasy with a guy that's been dead for 70 years. And what's even more sinister is that the movie tries to frame her eventual decision to give Steve up as some kind of tragic heroic sacrifice. Fuck off, Wonder Woman. You should be absolutely ashamed of what you've done here. The same premise also applies to WandaVision. According to that show, it's basically okay to take control of an entire town against their will and keep them in a state of perpetual agony as they're forced to live out your twisted fantasies. Why? Mm. Because someone you love died and now you've got the big sad. No shit, people lose loved ones every day, but it doesn't give them an excuse to go on some crazy rampage and destroy innocent lives. This is the stuff of horror movies, but for some reason the main character is framed as a tragically misunderstood hero that sacrifices the thing she loves for the sake of others, which is because she's a woman. It's a bit like framing a bank robber as a philanthropist because he got caught and forced to give back all the money he stole. 
They'll never know what you sacrificed for them. You didn't sacrifice anything, Wanda, because this stuff wasn't yours to take in the first place. Both Wonder Woman and WandaVision, whether they intended it or not, are teaching their audience some pretty <clears throat> fucking sketchy life lessons. The idea that your own personal happiness is literally more important Morning, than other people's freedom, well-being, and personal integrity. This is the worldview of a villain, not a fucking hero. You know, when I try to imagine the kind of person that would come out the other end if they took the lessons of all these movies and shows to heart, I'm kind of horrified by the possibilities. Instead of teaching people to be brave, determined and compassionate, to take the harder road and become stronger through adversity, to care for others and respect their freedom, to work hard and better themselves, we're instead teaching people to be arrogant, complacent, entitled, narcissistic and selfish. These are shitty lessons designed to produce shitty people that are destined to crash and burn once they get out into the real world. And it's working. Or even worse, invade it in large enough numbers that they actually start to dilute the culture and make it just as shitty as them. And if that happens, well, don't say the drinker didn't try to warn you. Anyway, that's all I've got for today. Go away now. Ah, guys, what can you say about it? It just, it is what it is. This is the world that we live in. They're ruining everything, quite frankly. Hollywood, TV, music, movies. It's all one big twerk fest, so to speak, guys. Anyways, we're going to do part two of this this evening. I'm going to go ahead and get the uh, stream set up so you'll get the notification here in a minute. Probably, hopefully, ideally, YouTube. And we'll have it all set up. So that'll be um, tonight, probably, I'll say 6 o'clock p.m. Because that sounds nice. Um, I'll get it set up for you guys. Thank you for coming by the stream. Don't forget, guys, hit the uh, cash app up here. That would be super awesome if you'll donate to the show. I would appreciate it. You can go to the website over there if you want to check out some merch. Or you can shop the Amazon links down here. Or you can join the members area if you want to get the little Gone with John badge and see some of my personal videos about my personal life outside of this studio. Anyways, guys, thanks for watching the show. I'll see you guys at 6 p.m. tonight. As always, I'm going to disappear for a moment while I throw some of your comments on the screen. We'll play some corpse if it'll play since I'm not paying for StreamYard right now. I don't know if the music even plays, quite frankly. I know that the trailer does, but I don't know if the music does. But anyways, here's some.
I hear today. Just... <laughs> 